0: Welcome to Literary Friction on NTS. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co host, Octavia Bright. Hello, Octavia. Hi, Carrie. We've got the Brexit blues here at Literary Friction. So today we're going to be celebrating something that bridges borders rather than closes them. Thank goodness. We're being positive. Only positive. So we will be talking about literary translation. We've deviated slightly from our usual format to bring you not one, but three interviews with people from different sides of translation in the UK. They are Spanish author Milena Busquets, Korean translator Deborah Smith, who just uh, co-jointly won the Penn International Prize with Han Kang for so The Vegetarian. Exciting. She's amazing. And German novelist and publisher of Pyrenee Press, Micah Sierfogel. We'll be hearing from these three brilliant women shortly discussing topics from what makes a good translation to whether foreign fiction can ever make inroads in this country. But first, let's talk about translation in the age of the dreaded brexit. Okay, let's be positive. So Octavia, what you know in the wake of Brexit, do you think that translation is even more important? Do you think translation has uh, can actually do something productive and important?
1: I do I really do. And as a a languages student, um, I know the the merit in learning about another culture via its literature. It's kind of the perfect way in to the reality of being French or German or Korean or wherever you might be from, Um, because it's really an act of empathy, reading. Uh, And that's what I feel is so lacking at the moment post-Brexit. You know, people are being very unempathetic towards one another. And it's not about being right or wrong. It's about being able to understand someone else's point of view and what what brings you closer to that more than a narrative where you, you adopt the perspective of a particular character. So yeah, I think it's vital, I think it's so important.
0: Yeah, and as someone who can't read well enough in another language um, to actually read fiction in its original form other than in English, um, obviously the, the ideal is to read a book in Spanish or in French or in Korean, but if you can't do
1: that, do you think that translation is a good enough replacement I think, I wouldn't call it a replacement, but I think it's a good enough um, aid into something else. I think, again, but this is speaking from the perspective of being a languages student. I When I read in translation, I aim to eventually read in the original language as well, where possible. But for me, that's only two languages. So it's, you know, it's like I could never read in Korean or Russian or Chinese or anything like that. Um, so, yeah, I guess what I'm trying to say is it's... A precious tool (laughs) that we have you know that we're able to to rely on other human beings to be the bridge between us and another Mm. culture in that way it's
0: exciting almost yeah it's really
1: exciting I love thinking about the process of translation
0: while I'm reading translated literature to think that somebody's actually taken something in a completely different language with different um, ways of expressing things that will never be fully translatable into English and, and try to replicate that in some way
1: yeah and actually it's it's Kind of a metaphor for any act of reading itself, because there's always things that are lost in the translation from page to to mind. Or there's the gaps in. Well, I like that, what you've oh, done there. You know, a little little bit of a. What would you even call that? I don't know. I don't Let's know. Let's move on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the the fact that in the act of reading, there's always going to be a certain amount that's lost in the transmission. And so when you're reading a translated text, you're even more aware that you're occupying this kind of middle space between the writer's intention and your understanding as reader being mediated by someone else who and the act of translating. I've done quite a lot of it um, in, in my education and it's it's an incredibly enriching thing to do because you get very close to. Uh, the original source, and you feel very connected to whatever it is that you're translating, because you really have to get in there and think about it. Um, And I know there's quite a few authors who translated as a way of learning their craft, a couple of Spanish guys Mm. I can think of. Um, Javi Marías is really interesting about this. He's multilingual, and he often writes about characters that are translators, um, because it is so connected to the art of reading and the art of writing and the art of narrative.
0: Yeah, the, uh, that example recently of Jhumpa Lahiri, who who yeah. um, I haven't read her whole book, but I, I read an excerpt from it. Um, she's become obsessed with Italian, um, so much so that she uprooted her entire family and moved to Rome and learned Italian. And not only that, um, now writes in Italian. And so what I read, because I can't read Italian, is a translation of a native English speak- speaker. Actually, she might not. I think she is a native English speaker, although she has some other languages, but she writes in English. Um, she's written it in Italian and it's been translated back into English. That's crazy. By Anne Goldstein, who also translated the Elena Ferrantes. Wow. So, um, well, I was about. But I think she's, she's someone who thinks quite deeply about Italian and, and what it means as a
1: language and why she wants to write in Italian rather than English. Well, the perspective that you get from being an outsider and then jumping into a language that's not your own is a really interesting shift for. Um, the way that a narrative develops, because obviously the writer is always a voyeur of their own characters and of their own narrative, but when you're also attempting to construct a story in a language that's not your native one, you know, my personality in French and my personality in Spanish are different from each other and quite different from me in English. I mean, multiple personality disorder, that sounds like, but the way that a language pre-exists you so in order to express yourself in it you have to step into this pre-existing space of the language and then manipulate it in order to express yourself it's fascinating and when you're trying to do that at third remove if you're writing in the third person or something like that i mean it's pretty trippy yeah um
0: but that's the beauty of language not love language <laughs> not love <laughs> love to, it, love to love simplify it. it but you know that that makes it even more exciting in some way mm. well let's talk about very quickly our, our favorite
1: translations what 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 translated literature has set you alight god russian russian literature in yeah. general when i first came to all of that you know dostoevsky and things when i was about 18 um i read uh, war and peace i read the master and margarita by bulgakov and uh they blew my mind. They really blew my mind. And they're very different from one another, those two books. Do you remember who the
0: translators were?
1: No, I don't remember at all. And especially at that point, I think I was interested in reading the book. I wasn't interested in thinking about the mediation, you know? Yeah. Um, um, there was a really interesting uh, article in The New Yorker
0: recently about, I don't know if you've come across um, the the translations of, I think, especially Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, that this pair are doing. Um, One of them's Russian and one of them is American.
1: No, Um, sounds fascinating. And
0: they've sort of monopolized Russian translation now, but there are a lot of people who don't think they're translating it Oh, my God. So anyway. Well, that's also,
1: you always have that debate about Proust as well, who I also love. And I don't read in French because it's too, I find it too slow. But I try and read in parallel text. So I first came across we sound so
0: pretentious. I first came across Proust when um, I was a young with the, woman with the Moncrief uh, <laughs> edition. But <laughs> no, um, the, the, the the first English translation of Proust was was famously done by this guy Moncrief, yeah. um who has a very flowery Victorian style. Um, and so many English readers, um, that's how they think about Proust. And actually, although I cannot read the French, so I don't know. But so, but people say it's much more stripped down than that. Way much more yeah. stripped down. Um, yeah. But I just love. I just loved that. Um, and I don't and and I'm of the school of um you know translation being a new book and and i I'm not necessarily upset by that and and I love those translations i it it's what made me fall in love with proofs so even even if it isn't the best approximation i i don't I sort of don't mind
1: yeah, I think that's really a fair a fair assessment as a reader. Yeah.
0: And lately, I mean, I've banged on about them, so I won't say any more, but Elena Ferrante. I I love those books, and I I read those all in translation.
1: Yeah. Well, on that note, there's actually a recording of a dramatization of it on Radio 4 at the moment, and I listened to it last night and was thinking about that in in reference to the show because that's uh, even a third step of translation. It's an hour-long show. It's just the first book, My Brilliant Friend, that has been condensed and dramatized. And I've also read the book and they were very faithful. They managed to get the sense across, but they've got the girls reading in Yorkshire accents
0: Brilliant, because they need to make it the
1: dialect and stuff. And that's another, that's a whole other show really, like literary adaptations into radio and and film. Um, But I was thinking about it, that it not only is that a translation, it's also then an adaptation. So when you slap those two things together, but how wonderful that we have a national radio station that is delving into European literature at this time when it's so important. Well, we will be back in a moment to talk to Milena Busquets,
0: who is a European author who's been translated into English and many other languages. Milena, thank you so much for being with us today. You've said in other interviews that you started to write this novel because your mother had recently died and because you weren't in love. Can you explain what you mean by that?
2: Yes, well, I think that, uh, well, there are two different things. I think that one, like, to write, you really need to 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 have a lot of time in your hands and also to be... In a way, peaceful. I mean, to have something very powerful to say, to have the, something strong that drives you. In that case, it's true that it was my mother's death, and and the fact that uh, I started writing, you know, a year after she she died. But the the the, the pain was still very. I think it was, you know, it's it was exactly the the, the right distance between uh, between being too close. Because sometimes when you've lost someone, or when you are, when you're very miserable, or when you're very happy, if you write it. Uh, Immediately, when you're feeling the happiness or the pain, it's too quickly, you cannot really judge it. But also, if you wait too much, it disappears somehow. You lose, you become to invent your own memories. So yes, I started writing it because uh, the the pain was still very uh, acute, even though a year, more than a year had passed. And also, yes, I think love uh, uh, takes a lot of time. <laughs> 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 love, especially, I think, for a woman, yeah. even though for some men too, takes... Uh, takes a lot of time and it's very like uh, I mean I, I love writing but uh, in on equal terms with being in love like it's something that uh, I would put in the balance it's two of the of the best things I think that there are and of course yeah the fact of not being in love at the time made my loneliness um, m- much more acute I was really I was really feeling very alone and also the love i had which were basically the love for my two uh, children it's it's a, it's a different sort of love because you are they're so dependent on you mm. so there's only giving and giving and you don't take back because you don't want to take back because you feel that your duty is to give the place Kadakesh
1: comes across so sort of strongly and powerfully and i was saying yes. to you before i've been there and it's an incredible part of the world um and if, if this experience of writing this book was like a catharsis for you in some yes. way was was it important to go back to that place for you yes. in your Well, I never world. stopped
2: being. I, I never stopped going to Cadaqués and I think in this case, yes, it's a small, it's a pretty small town in the Mediterranean, but I think we all have a Cadaqués. I mean, for me, even if it had been uh, an ugly little city outside of Barcelona, for me it would have been my Cadaqués because it's the place where I discover freedom and where I discovered, yes, love and where I got drunk for the first time or, or I slept with a boy for the first time. It's like the place where... I discovered really freedom, because in Barcelona, it's a small city, and I was going, of course, to the, to the school, and I was going to the French lycée, which is also a very, it's a very bourgeois school, so I was the only one there who wasn't baptized, whose parents were not married. I was, uh, I was a bit of a strange girl there, where I felt like that. And, and, but it was very organized. Like I would go in the morning, I would return. whereas in Cadaqués we were left there for three months. Because, of course, our parents were working. And we were left there, me and my brother, with a, with a nanny, which, who was much more than a nanny, who was like my mother. And then, yes, we were allowed to discover freedom, which is very important. And I think urban people, we have lost a little bit of this uh, this freedom and this uh, the, 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 the capacity of, do, of of using this freedom. In Karakesh, it could be used to the full. And no, I think the main thing, of, of, in this case, Karakesh is very pretty. But uh, it could be the ugliest place in the world. The important thing is to have one Ca mm-hmm. is to have had some place where you were free and 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 happy and and, and capable of. I think we, we use very little of our freedom. We are much more free of what we, of what we use. We very quickly we, we try to get uh, into cat- into safe categories because it's easier and safer.
0: Yeah and you mentioned it was very autobiographical and yes. uh, you must get asked all the time how much of this main character Blanca yes. is you does that frustrate you do you think it's important for well, people to know I
2: think I think we are all gossips in a way and that's why yes a little bit and and that's why we tell stories and that's why we listen to stories so it's such a part of who we are as human beings curiosity that uh, I understand it. I don't know if it, I don't think it matters Liter- literary. I don't think it matters. I think the book works as an artifact or it doesn't. It doesn't matter if I have a dog or if the last man, the mysterious last man, people like come up to me and say, So how is it going with the mysterious man? <laughs> and I'm so sorry to say, Well, he was never, he never existed. That upsets like me. it was completely <laughs> made up. And in fact, I didn't, it was so, he's so much uh, invented that I, I didn't know how to describe him physically, and there was a singer at the time that I liked very much, a Catalan singer, and so I said, well, I'm going to use him, and physically, more or less, I described him, and then after the book, I met him, <laughs> and I came to him, <laughs> to this very famous musician, who thought I was totally crazy, and he was oh, he's much younger than me, and well, I introduced myself, and he knew me, he had read the book, he loved it, and I said, you know, this character, he's based on you. <laughs> and He was like, what? That's amazing. <laughs> Did you get a date out of it, at least? No, not even... <laughs> No, unfortunately, no. Damn. But uh, but no, I think we use everything we have to write. So you use if it's so difficult to write that when you start writing something, you use everything. You use your life, but also you, you use what. Yes, if you've seen someone that that has struck you for some reason, or, or if you've done something, or, or and then our dreams, which are so powerful, not so much our sleeping dreams, but our our desires, who we who we wish we were, who we have tried to be and maybe failed. And and desire is such an important part of this book as well. Um, there's this one yes. bit that
1: I found incredibly striking where Blanca is thinking about the various men that we've met throughout the novel. Yes. So two ex-husbands, yes. um, a lover, and there's a paragraph where she describes them all kind of merging from one into the next into the yes. next. Yes, yes. And it, I like it really, too. yeah, it was super striking yes. for me because I thought, it's that thing about the object of desire is kind of irrelevant sometimes, right? Yes. It's like the act of desiring that, yes. that we l- l- yearn for. Um, and I, l- I thought that it's a really beautiful contrast in the book to the feeling of grief, which is
2: such an ending, and desire being much more about beginnings and everything. Yes. And, and, and it's the, wish, the, the, the search also, the search to, to be fully understood, to be fully accepted, and to be fully love. I think this is at the heart of everything. When they say there's a novel with uh, a lot of sex in it, I, I, I think it's much more a, a love novel than a sex novel. O- okay, maybe there is some sex, but I think the sex it's you know, I don't believe, I don't agree very much with these people who separate, who make such a clear separation between sex and love. I think when sex is interesting, when it's challenging and when you put yourself at risk, is when it's very close to love because otherwise you don't risk anything otherwise it's like having a hamburger <laughs> yes.
1: no which can be nice no, sometimes true. if you need it if you need
2: it yeah I, if you need it I don't have anything against it yeah. but when when you really wh- the risk and the challenge and the da- danger and, and and what's interesting about life is putting yourself uh, in danger i think otherwise mm. it's when it's very very close to, to 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 love i mean i'm interested in sex because it's a way to it, it's one of the ways that that loves that lover uh, present itself somehow and one of the more powerful ways for me at least love is so defiant in this novel in some
0: ways because it's a novel about grief and how how to deal with grief and and love becomes the antidote and the the most essential thing that that helps blanca get get over her grief it also is a distraction of some sorts Um, yeah of
2: course of course it can be like love and and the hedonistic pleasures, and in this, year I include, of course, sex, and I include having wine with my friends, and, and whatever gives you pleasure and makes you, like, swimming in the sea in the summer, It's uh, it, these are, are small things, but I think that they rescue you in a very big way, and they shouldn't be uh, overlooked or banalized. Like, sometimes I've been accused in in, in Spain of being uh, like frivolous, because intellectuals in Spain, they are so like highbrow and everything. Also they it macho? Very macho. Yes, but Spain. even the, but even the right even the woman writers, yeah, yeah. you see so much that they want to be writers. They don't want to write. They want to be taken seriously as writers.
1: Yeah, they want the status. Yes, and n- not to be honest. But this is way. crazy. Mm.
2: The status of writer is nothing. They have this idea that the status of a writer is I don't know what. We are nothing, and I know it because I've been brought up in in this atmosphere. So I've seen writers and. And and the best ones they, they they don't believe they're anything and I find this uh, th- th- um, I I defend uh, frivolity because I don't think frivolity and superficiality are the same thing and I think frivolity helps you depending the the, the sort of person you are frivolity helps you is a tool to to go through life mm. like sense of humor for example that British people you know so much about but also I think even frivolity is more respected here for example like. I don't know, like Oscar Wilde, for example. Mm. If someone so great as Oscar Wilde was writing in Spain now, he would be considered a bit frivolous because of his... And he's not at all, he's enormously uh, deep and well, he's one of my favorite authors. And incre- I think he's incredibly modern. Well, now this thing, like there is this uh, desire of, of uh, seriousness. And I think life is so serious anyway mm. that you don't need to make it more. It's interesting
0: that you mentioned different cultures because this book has been translated into a lot of different languages si. and a lot of different mm. countries. And have you have you seen a real difference um, between the ways that different cultures think about the novel no. and think about this element of frivolity? No.
2: No, because we are very... Like, frivolity? No. Because uh, I think, I- if anything, it has been understood better, Like like countries like France, c- and maybe it will happen also here, countries where... You have a much m- longer intellectual tradition in a way, and you read much more than in Spain, which is so hard to sell books. Mm-hmm. There is a respect for 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 lightness.
1: You know, it made me think of Françoise Sagan. Yeah, Françoise French Sagan. Writer. I I love her. She's another writer who aims for that pitch. Yes, which is really inclusive. Yes, and not pretentious. Exactly, in any
2: way, right? It's a lack of pretension. No, and I have friends who had never read Sagan until I told them to, because yes, because they think it's something like it's so it's going to be so light. Well, I think I don't know P.D. James the I think she's one of the, she wa- She died recently, didn't she? I think she's one of the greatest uh, British authors p- uh, of the last 50 years, probably. And she does thrillers, I don't know how you call it, murder yeah, thriller stories. Thrillers. So, yeah. And she's so good. She was so amazing. It's it's very high literature for me. Well, Milena, thank you so no, much. thank you. That it's been a great s- interview. Thanks so much. It's been lovely to have yes.
0: you. Um, the book is called This Too Shall Past. It's now published in English, and um, it's in bookstores. So please go pick it up.
2: No, thank you.
0: That was Milena Busquets, author of This Too Shall Pass. Now we move from author to translator. So Octavia, could
1: you introduce Deborah Smith? Sure thing. Deborah Smith is a Korean literary translator. And so far, her translations have included novels by Bai Sua and Han Kang. Um, this year, she and Kang shared the Man Booker International Prize for the novel The Vegetarian, which is exciting. I still haven't read it. It's amazing. I, I can't I wait. Read it's it. on my list. Um and Deborah also founded Tilted Axis Press in 2015, which is a brilliant enterprise dedicated to publishing books that might not otherwise make it into English. Okay, here's our interview with Deborah.
0: Deborah Smith, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. You've had quite an unusual path into translation, um, specifically Korean translation. So, you, can you talk a bit about how you got into it?
3: Yeah, sure. I suppose the most unusual thing was that. I was actually monolingual until I was 22. I only spoke English. I had, obviously, because you had to, had French lessons at school, but after about five years, I could pretty much order a pizza in French, and that was it. So I definitely wasn't translating any books. Um, But I did my undergrad degree in English Lit. I loved books. I loved literature. I loved reading, writing. That was pretty much the only thing that I thought I was any good at. And... I graduated and I'd always, I'd always thought that I would like languages. I'd always somehow thought that that would be something I was interested in uh, without knowing any. And I'd always read more in translation than not, I think, partly because something about, I don't know, internationalism and culture felt exciting and sort of broadening horizons and all that. So I decided that I wanted to be a translator, then... I had to learn a language <laughs> to have something to translate from. Um, and I chose the obvious one, which was Korean.
1: <laughs> it's brilliant to think of you going into it from the other way around. So mm. many translators are drawn by the language first. And actually sure. I can imagine being drawn by the kind of career, the, the choice first. Yeah, Gives you a different connection to your work and what you're looking for in it. Mm. Um, I wanted to ask you, do you think thoughts and ideas are structured very differently by the Korean language than in English? Do they have a, a notably different approach to things?
3: Yeah, I think sometimes I know that some people in the sort of translation theory community especially are a little bit wary about thinking of it like that. I think there's the famous example, I forget what it is exactly, but it's something like the Chinese word for something. I think uh, crisis and one of the characters also mean opportunity and there was this whole thing around the financial crisis about how all the Chinese will see this as an opportunity (laughs) because you know (laughs) it's embedded in the DNA of their language and I don't know I mean if you think about everything that's in English it's so you know you take it for granted so much so it's hard to tell what is actually having an effect but definitely when you're translating there's a lot the writer can have done with the structure so things like it's a subject object verb language so a lot of the important information can be delayed for effect so for suspense or you can have a sentence that is going on for quite a while and you think you know exactly what's going on but the negative will come right at the end as well so then it can be completely sort of turned on its head and that can be Yeah, obviously very difficult to replicate in English without it sounding too forced, uh, which is something that I'm always really wary of doing. Um, So I guess I think it would have to be, it would have to be something that the writer had maybe noticed about the language itself and that they were experimenting with. Once you
0: learned Korean and started thinking about Mm -hmm. these things, how did you actually get a gig translating? Because the the two authors whose books you've translated are um, amazing authors, and um, and one of them has won the Penn International that you shared with them, obviously. So, mm. how did you find Han Kang? And um, and can you pronounce her name? Because I'm going to do Besua. it. Besua. Besua. Okay. Yep.
3: <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, one thing really quickly, I would not say that I now know Korean, or I have stopped learning Korean, um, and I certainly didn't know Korean when I started translating. The very first book I did was actually one by Bae Suha, which was the winter of 2012, so that was only two years after I'd started learning, and that was horrifically hard to try and haul myself through that book. But her, I discovered through the PhD I was doing, it was in Korean literature, I read uh, some stuffy old male critic um, slagging her off for being too experimental, essentially, which sounded amazing to me. So I made a little note of that to look her up. And then Hang Kang was actually <laughs> something funny that I had done, which was completely as an aspirational thing put on my university bio and my Twitter bio that I was a literary translator from Korean to English meaning, you know, at some point, this is what I will be. So I'll just just put it down now. Otherwise, it would just say student, which is just rubbish. Um, And so a publisher in London and other stories had been sent The Vegetarian by Hank Kang's agent. Um, But they'd been sent, you know, a Korean book. And they couldn't read Korean. They didn't know anybody who can read Korean because there aren't that many people. But they knew me on Twitter. I was a subscriber. And so they sent me this book, and said you know oh can you can you do a sample of it can you do the sort of readers report for us and i was sort of too mortified to explain <laughs> that. Um, probably not because i never tried to actually read an entire book in korean at that point so I hacked my thoughts i hacked my way through an incredibly awful sample which they did not take um, which, given how amazing the book is, shows you how bad my translation was <laughs> at that point. Um, but then a year later, it was. Um, I was at the London Book Fair preparing for the following year, which is going to be the big South Korea year. Um, I'd done a much better job of the translation. I met a publisher there. They asked me if I had anything to send them, and I sent it to them that's was brilliant there. I think
1: <laughs> I mean having a bit of hustle is always there was so a good much thing. hustle yeah. it was all the hustle <laughs> and <laughs> blatant hustle. lies at some point <laughs> yeah I mean I, I, I support those too and they mm. get you where you need to go um how much contact do you have uh with authors or have you had any contact with the authors that you've translated mm.
3: I didn't at first when I was translating the vegetarian just because that was my first job for a contract and I didn't know what the normal procedure if there is such a thing was I didn't have the author's contact details nobody had given them to me so I just did the translation sent it to the editor Um, but they then sent it to her which is in the writer's contract and it turned out that she could read English really well Um, and which could have been an awful thing Um, she could have just Tore my translation to shreds, uh, but she didn't. She sent it back then to me with just really helpful comments. Sort of not suggestions for the English, because Hangang really feels that that is the sort of the translator's domain. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, telling me a little bit more about her intention behind a particular scene, a particular character, or even a a word choice. And now that's what I do with her other novels as well. I go through it and translate it and sort of save up. I'll have some questions at the end of her, things I wasn't quite sure about. um, Maybe things where it needed uh, particularly more of a creative translation. I want to check that she's okay with that. And then we have a really interesting um, back and forth about that. Uh, With Bersua, it's a little different because she doesn't read English at all, although she translates from German uh, into Korean. And sadly, I don't speak any German. Um, But I do the same thing with her now. It's mainly questions. um, Not questions that are, you know, what exactly is this grammatically? But, you know, what do you you mean by this? This seems weird. It's supposed to be weird, that sort of thing. (laughs) in a a less sort of offensive way (laughs) why is this like this change it (laughs) have
0: you ever made them rethink how they've said something or structured something no (laughs) No.
3: (laughs) Um, that would be nice
0: (laughs) i loved your forward in human acts um Mm. where you i don't think you have one in the vegetarian do you No. no um you you talk a bit about about the novel itself but also translating it and mm. and you you pick out this specific um thing that happens at the very beginning of the book where her description of um corpses and bodies mm. changes um throughout the first few pages. So can you talk a bit about that and why why you picked that out as something that you wanted to highlight and how you thought about how to translate that?
3: Sure. So it was something I I noticed when I was reading the Korean initially because it was unusual. Korean does have more words for body, I suppose, than English has. So it's not unusual in itself, but the amount of instances and the way that it was constantly switching back and forth between them was something that I hadn't come across before. And so there were more sort of ordinary words that you could use for a body of someone who is alive or dead. Um, There were ones that meant specifically dead body. um, Ones that were more like, I suppose we would say, corpse or cadaver. So they had a more medical sense. Some that were, I suppose you would translate, if you had to sort of spell it out, as flesh and blood, when you talk about, in maybe a religious context, like flesh turning to dust. And so... I realised from the context that what she was doing in this chapter, which is uh, about a young boy who has to sort of watch over and tend to these corpses of unidentified people, is that she was trying to flag up this idea that because they haven't yet been identified and so they can't yet be buried and their souls therefore are not at rest, that they're in this sort of strange limbo this liminal space between alive and dead and nobody's quite sure of their status nobody's quite sure what to call them Um, nobody is is able to give the sort of rights that will settle that and make that easy for people and that the fact that they've been put in this situation is kind of another violation on top of the fact that they were murdered in the first place um, and so then when I was translating it, obviously you can't just replicate that in the English because it doesn't work in the same way and we wouldn't have used that. So I tried to get the same effect, but with a lot fewer instances. So I would have a couple uh, in there here and then. And I also had the boy himself sort of a little bit more explicitly wondering about the status of these bodies.
1: Yeah, a creative solution to mm. get the essence of it. Um, having been so up so close to Han Kang's style, how would you describe it in general terms? And do you think it has affected your own writing as well? Mm. Um, I think the
3: one word would be controlled. And I think that that's what makes it so effective when in the vegetarian and human acts, both she's writing about very extreme situations extreme violence extreme sexuality and if it wasn't incredibly restrained then I think it would really easily seem hysterical or like she was being sort of overly sensationalist and so that was I think probably the thing that I was most careful about when I was translating that I didn't accidentally sort of add any of maybe my own sensationalism in there although in the first the draft of the vegetarian that I'd sent to the editor that she read uh there were quite a few exclamation marks uh and I think a character said oh my god at one point which he sort of quietly (laughs) erased (laughs) all of these and I was like yes okay that's that's fair enough nobody (laughs) needs to say these things Um, and I think definitely you do, the longer you work with a writer, you take on something of their style. It's kind of a process of osmosis, I suppose. And uh, maybe that's one of the skills of being a translator is that you're a bit of a sponge. You don't have too much of a, a style of your own. And so I really appreciate being able to work on books by the same authors. I feel like each time I do another book, by them, I am in a much better position to translate their writing.
0: And you're not only a translator, but mm-hmm. a publisher. You founded Tilted Access Press in 2015. Yes. Is that right, last year? Yep. Um. So can you talk a bit about um, what you do there? And um, as as the listeners will hear, this mm. has a lot of relevance about our larger discussion of translation as well.
3: Sure. I suppose the the aims behind it were a little bit similar to what I'm, I'm trying to do or what I'm doing as a translator as well. So it's uh, literature, very contemporary books uh, in translation and from Asian languages. And there was just something that I had noticed as a translator getting a bit of an insider's view on the industry that books from certain languages and books that are not incredibly commercially viable so just anything a little bit more innovative or experimental are so much less likely to make it through into English for obvious reasons like authors will not speak English a lot of the time they're less likely to have an agent who's going to be pitching their work the editors won't be able to read the original there aren't as many translators all of that sort of stuff but you know, I, I kept coming across work, which was incredible. And it was the same situation with you know, Korean literature, which wasn't published that widely you know, a few years ago. So I really wanted to try and find a way to just publish stuff that was good um, and that wasn't being published previously for reasons other than it not being good, If that if that makes sense. Um, and so yes, it's all Asian translations and it's also uh, 50% women, uh, although actually that I sort of I said that at the beginning to like make sure that I did it, but I don't know if my tastes are just naturally aligned that way anyway because it really has not been. Like a difficulty <laughs> to find lots of amazing work by women. Amen, sister. Yeah, oddly enough, <laughs> so many people ask us like, "Oh, but it's a difficult having a quota." It's like having to get rid of all these amazing men and take these mediocre women on instead. And um, yeah, no, I haven't haven't found that oddly. Um, and so th- yeah, the other thing that we really wanted to do around that is to publish stuff that was very contemporary and possibly yes, a little bit more innovative because a lot of the, you know, well, the few books that are being published from those regions are often kind of marketed and seen in a way that is a bit more anthropology than art. And I really wanted to, you know, do for them what Hankang and the vegetarian had done for them, which was an amazing marketing and publicity and cover design and everything that wasn't, you know, this is some kind of exotic window into another culture and let's read it to learn and sort of translation is about eating our vegetables it's it's not at all it's just why would you limit yourself to reading books from one country or a small sample of countries when there is clearly going to be brilliant stuff published all over the world
0: Thank you, Deborah. Thank you. That was great. I'm, f- I'm feeling roused <laughs> and excited now.
3: I'm feeling roused too. Yeah. <laughs> it's been
0: a pleasure to have you
3: on. And you, thank you.
0: Finally, here is our interview with author and publisher Micah Sirvogel. Um, I had to practice her name a lot with her.
1: You nailed it though. Can you tell us a bit about Micah, Octavia? Sure thing. Micah um, grew up in northern Germany and came to London in 1986 to study Arabic language and literature. In 2008, she founded the fabulous Pyrenee Press, which is dedicated to publishing short translated fiction. She's also the author of three novels Magda, Clara's Daughter, and Kauthar all of which are published by Salt in the UK. Okay, here's Micah.
0: Micah Seerfogel, thank you so much for coming on the show. So we wanted to start by just asking you to talk about why you set up Pyrenee and what the aim of, of the publishing house is to do.
4: So I set up Pyrene in 2008 and we came out with our first book in 2010. And uh, until last year, or in fact until this year, we uh, specialized in translated fiction entirely. And really I come from the linguistic and from the writing side. I've lived in the UK for the last, um, since 1987, uh, more or less, with a couple of years interruption. I speak Arabic, French, German and English, of course. And what struck me, of course, living here for over for that period of time is um, that there is a niche and there's a lack for translated fiction in particular. And so when I turned 40, I suddenly realized I think it's time to do something about that. And so I set up the publishing house.
1: And as an editor, what do you look for in a good
4: text bearing in mind that you're going to have it translated? So um, I only publish, or Pyrene only publishes books under 200 pages, so novellas or short novels. And we have one short story collection. Um, and that's really due to, to my own passion, because I thought if I want to make a success of the books I bring over, because just publishing them is not good enough, you need to find readers for the books you publish. So I thought, well, I need to be passionate about these books and therefore any book I buy the rights for to translate into English I will have read in its entirety either in the original or in a version that I could have read. So for example I don't read Finnish or Catalan um, and I usually therefore have already read a German translation of the book or a French translation of the book and um, then I for me it is really important that it's um It has a drive, a narrative drive, a very strong voice, coherent imagery. And um, I'm very aware that my literary sensibility is a Western European sensibility, which is actually only recently has sort of, I've started to think about this because I'm also uh, acutely aware that Parini doesn't have at the moment any um, books from Eastern Europe, for example, on its list. And it's not because I haven't tried to find one, um, but because when I start reading these books, uh, they don't grab me. And I'm actually now wondering if I need to start slightly changing my perspective, my attitude. So um, I'm trying to find how to do that.
0: so interesting how so much of publishing and especially what gets translated is is affected by personal taste what Mm -hmm. what editors and publishers respond to and people who speak the language and i wanted to ask you specifically about a book that octavia and i have both read um her father's daughter by um and i always pronounce her name wrong (laughs) (laughs) was it marie Suzanne? Yeah, Yeah. Um, who we interviewed and who was this wonderful older woman who who wrote a book um, about, well, based upon her relationship with her father, but it's a novel. And I was wondering if you could talk us through the process of, first of all, how you found that book, and then how you chose for it to be translated and, and what that process was like.
4: So in this case, I actually found this book via an agent. Um, usually, I mean, there, there are a number of ways I find uh, the Pyrene books, either through agents or um, uh, original pub- publishing houses. Pyrenee now is quite well established in the international market as well. So people approach me, translators approach me. But I also very often um, rely on personal recommendations by anyone, by readers, um, by translators, by friends. Anyway, in this case, it was a tran- um, an agent. And she uh, gave me this book uh, in French, I think, four years ago. And it didn't, at that point, it, it went onto my pile, on the maybe pile, but it didn't immediately attract my attention. And um, so there it lay for about two years. And perhaps I should also say the way I publish the books is that every year I publish, uh, the books I publish each year, or pyrenee publishes each year, are linked by a common theme. And so I have, I always look for a book that really grips me. And then I look onto my maybe pile and see which other books could possibly fit around this. And so her father's daughter, um, it just happened to be that it suddenly caught my eye and I started reading it and I was absolutely bowled over by the voice really, by the way it was told. What was off-putting actually for me initially, and that's why I had to overcome that hurdle, was it was a second World War story. That's how it was sold to me by the agent initially and i i basically said second world war story we have so many of this um but yeah i started reading it and i just love the simplicity of it and um i mean marie explains the way she she tells the story through the eyes of a four-year-old but of course with the words of of an adult i mean it's it's fantastic then uh, in, with French translations is uh, fantastically easy for me <laughs> <laughs> because I have, I'm have i working with a brilliant translator there, Adriana Hunter, she's translated all the books, all the pyrenee books from French. Um, and um, that's, I, I do reuse the translators I have a good relationship with. Um, and that also, I mean, at, at Adriana and I, we have um, a similar artistic outlook. We want something some similar from the English text, from the translation. And so this is really now, we, we have a fantastic working relationship. I give her the text, it comes back to me. Editing is pretty, you know, I, I do some editing, but not that much. Uh, and then it goes on to our copy editor or line editor. Again, I mean, yeah, it's all straightforward. And then eventually it goes to another proofreader. So the text does go through a number of hoops and a number of people tend to work on it
1: so that process of refinement upon refinement um makes me want to ask do you think that the translated text is a new text in itself or is it a sister or a copy or you know how would you describe it uh
4: I always say the, the original text and the translated text are two different texts um, and what we are trying to do and that's why it's also important that I, as as the publisher, know the entire text before I buy the rights is we try to Stay truthful to the soul. I always talk about the soul of the text, the voice of the text. Um, however, we are not s- sticking to the text word by word or even sometimes not sentence by sentence. We tend to also cut every now and again because you do get away in other languages with more repetition. For example, dialogue tends to be f- a l- far more repetitive in other languages <laughs> and you get away with it. But you don't get away with it, I think, in English. You know, Once something is said, you move on. Uh, the same is, you know, sort of paragraphs. The flow of information depends on, on the language and therefore is, of course, different from language to language. Again, we play around with that. We make the text work in English, but always um, having the rhythm, the soul, the feeling of the text in mind. And that's what we're trying to to encapsulate and to replicate.
0: It's interesting. To hear that you use the same translator over and over and and it sounds like she's also trying to replicate the soul as you say, which I, I love the way. I think Kubrick famously said about literary adaptation something similar, that it was a I think he said something like the seed or the soul of things rather than a, a sort of scene for scene recreation of it. But I if you do you think you'd be able to read a book that Adriana Hunter had translated not knowing that she'd translated it and be able to recognize her style or do you think that's it's more about obfuscation of style to suit what the original was like
4: that's a very uh, interesting question um i'm just trying to think. i mean she has translated for me very different books. I mean, if you ra- read, for example, Beside the Sea by Veronique Olmy, that's about a mother who kills her two children. And as you can imagine, that voice is very different to her father's daughter, where a little girl narrates who loves her father. Um, I, I would say, there mu- yes, there, there, it's probably, I always think it's, it's like, probably like an actor. Um, you know, a really good actor should be able to transform him or herself into various uh, incarnations but at the same time they also need to stay true to themselves as well in order to be authentic i mean it's that's why i also think the text the translator text is a collaboration even if the translator and the author ha- haven't worked together um, but it's it's a collaboration between the author and the um and the translator it's no longer just the author's text and i know i'm moving there onto thin ice <laughs> <laughs> But, um, but perhaps I should just actually say, give my, my own example. So I write my own novels in English, and one of my novels um, was translated into German, into my mother tongue. And I did not, uh, I said from the start, "I'm, you know, uh, you go ahead, translate it. If the translator had asked me questions, I would have been willing to answer them, but I really didn't want to be involved in the translation process. Because again, as a publisher, I'm usually telling, I'm very keen to let s- the author stay out of that translation process, because th- their job is done. And that's very much I felt with with my book as a writer. I wrote it in English, that's it, my job was done. Then the text was sent to me before it went uh, to print. I didn't click on, on it. I didn't want to open it. Um, it eventually was sent to me as a book. And um, it was lying there for weeks on end. <laughs> and I didn't actually want to read, but at the same time, I also knew I did. I did owe it to the translator. Um, and it was a very, very strange experience because of course I have the rhythm of the English in my, in my ear. So reading it even in my mother tongue is is strange. But what was also interesting, of course, you know, I could recognize it as my text, but there was also something, so when I do, um, a lot of readers here sa- uh, say to me, this is a really brutal text. Now, I, I understand where they're coming from, but there was always a part which I didn't understand. And when I was reading the translation, I suddenly thought, oh, my God, this is just, you know, yeah, really brutal. How deep must I have dug to get out of, you know, to get that out? And I couldn't see that with the English and probably I needed that distance in order to create what I created. Um, but that was a very interesting experience. And that's exactly what I always say to my authors I, on the whole always flag up a big warning <laughs> and so just because they all you know most of them speak you know good english um and um i just say you know i just you know just to let you know this will sound different and it has to sound different if it were to sound like your original we had done something really wrong
1: it's fascinating that you have both perspectives as author and editor and two very different hats. Um, and I, I wanted to return to your analogy of the actor because I could imagine reading a translation of your own text is a bit like having yourself acted on stage, you know, having a, a, an actor come play you in a movie or something like that. Um, and just as an actor, giving a bad performance can ruin a good play. Do you think a bad translation can ruin a good book?
4: Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly it can. <laughs> Um, but again, that's um, so. If I speak as an author, I think this is out out of the author's control. It's not in my control. Um, you know, if I've done my job as a writer, I've done my job. I've written the text and I've written it to whatever capability, and then you have to let go, and others have to do whatever. If it's a film adaptation, again, you know, um, film adaptations often. If you read the book and watch the film, and often the best films based on books. Actually, take huge liberties and really move away. They jump, you know, take the text as a jumping-off board for some for their own creative ideas. Um, and as a publisher, I am um, very aware that that a bad translation can can totally ruin um, a good text because I also think a good text depends on on the voice, on the overall. Coming back to the idea of the soul, the rhythm, um, and that can be destroyed if you get the register wrong. Um, there was um, a book, we have a Catalan book on our uh, list called Stone in the Landslide, which is narrated by an old uh, Catalonian woman from, from the mountains. And the dialect it apparently in, in Catalan uses a very um, rare dialect. I read the German translation um, and I, l- I loved it, it was beautiful, a very simple German um, And so uh, I then uh, commissioned three Catalan translators to give me a sample translation. And it was fascinating what they came up with. And the worst was one translator tried to put it into a northern dialect or accent and it just was. I mean, the, the the image of that woman, of the narrator, I had in mind when I read his translation, uh, sample translation, was, of a sort of bitter, fag, smoking, sm- smoking old, duck. <laughs> and that's just not the voice of the text at all. Uh.
0: I love that. Um, (laughs) As someone who doesn't speak another language well enough, I I find I just read translation and wonder what's been changed. There's that not knowing element. um, Like, has this been turned into a completely different character? So as as a final question, I wanted to ask you about the dreaded Brexit, um, which um, is one of the themes that has arisen from this translation show, I think, because we've been thinking about it a lot. Um, And I think it seems... Particularly pertinent to what you do, so I'm I'm wondering how you see your place in a in a post post Brexit post Brexit world.
4: I have to say, I think I'm I'm actually really proud of what we're doing, especially thinking of the post Brexit world. Um, and it is, uh, yeah, on one level, I feel yes, I'm, I'm doing exactly the right thing. We do need to listen. To more di- to to different stories, and that's now more important than ever. And so, um, people like like Pyrene or publishing houses like Pyrene, we just need to yeah r- raise our profile, raise our voice even more. Um, and so that's really important. But it's also coming back to to what I was um, saying right at the beginning. Um, you know, it's all very well me saying, well, you know. Uh, the UK readers don't read other people's voice uh, stories. Um, I have exactly, yeah, I'm just becoming aware how I'm also stuck in my own way and just listening to the same stories, reading in some ways or choosing exactly what I know and not knowing really how to change my perspective, how to move slightly to the left, slightly to the right in order to view... Uh, other people's narratives in a way that makes it accessible to myself. And if I can't do that, how can I then demand from my readers or teach, you know, show my readers how to do it? So I think there's also a learning curve um, for all of us to be had. And we all need to re-examine ourselves. And and um, because it's, it's not just, I think, within the... Um, you know cultural uh, creative world we could easily say oh you know how could that have happened um but perhaps we are also it's also partly our fault you know um and and we need to look at ourselves and i think that's that's actually a lesson to be learned and to be carried forward
0: micah thank you so much you've been a total delight and um and the pyrenee press publishes both beautiful and very good books so i'd recommend everyone go out and buy them That's all the time we have for today.
1: Thanks to our interviewees, Milena, Deborah, and Micah, and also to Eddie Knight for sound and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and on nts.live. You can also check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please do, and leave comments and give us a rating. We love to hear from you. We will be back in a month. I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this
0: is Literary Friction.